Praise God for his goodness. Thank you, praise team, for leading us in that this morning. Delightful destiny. What are you living for? Not about purpose this morning. First section, savoring that Christmas cake. Isn't it fun to get gifts of baking at Christmas time? Or maybe you make gifts of baking, bless you. Or to see the special foods that are only available at that time of year in the store. Things like eggnog, my favorite, the PC chocolate fudge crackle candy cane ice cream. Amen. Oh, dear. You can also get sugar cookies and shortbread. Sugar cookies can be so light you practically inhale them. Then at the other end of the range is Christmas cake, whether gumdrop cake or that darker raisin and fruit chocked traditional Christmas cake. You can't inhale that. You have to chew it slowly, savoring the flavor in each bite. It's not something to be hurried. Is anybody hungry yet? Our scripture passage today is a bit like that. It's not something to be hurried through. Paul the Apostle has packed it chock full of spiritual richness and goodness, so it's best digested slowly, thoughtfully, meditatively. Verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians are just one long sentence in the Greek, yet they address our past, present, and future as believers. In contrast to those who point out the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, you can nevertheless see references to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit with their ministries interwoven all in this one sentence. In a way, this one sentence is a good primer uh, introduction to Christian theology, really. It's also a good passage to meditate on given the current state of unrest and low-grade anxiety in our society. January 6th marked the anniversary of a significant protest and incursion at the U.S. Capitol and continues to expose the polarization between factions in our neighbor to the south. There is a vague feeling of disorder. There are divisions within families and amongst friends over pandemic policies. Here there is continuing upheaval due to the unsettling effect of the pandemic. New restrictions announced by the province this past Monday affect whether people go into work or work from home, students needing to stay home and study online rather than attend class in person. You can't go to certain places like the theater or gym as you usually might. There's a lot of isolation currently due to restrictions. Winter itself can be isolating with bad weather, closing highways, disrupting school bus schedules, trouble starting your car and getting out the driveway, and so forth. Those with seasonal affective disorder can find January and February to be particularly dark months. Then we have our physical distancing, masking, quarantining, gathering size limits, and close contact measures that also prevent us from getting together in more friendly and intimate ways as we normally might. In this passage, Paul reminds us that Jesus addresses these upsetting factors of disorder, upheaval, and isolation. Concerning disorder, God's purpose in the long run is to bring about cohesion through submission to Jesus. As verse 10 says, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Concerning upheaval, we're assured of a lasting purpose and coherence to existence. 
According to verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And concerning isolation, verse 10 also emphasizes God's purpose is eventually to bring all things in heaven and on earth together. The, the Greek verb is one used for adding up a column of numbers. God will eventually sum things up relative to Jesus. This is good to know when we look around and currently things don't just seem to add up or make sense. Section 10, things about yourself in Christ. Throughout these dozen verses, you'll find over and over again one little phrase or variation of it that points us in one direction. Maybe you've driven by a car dealership and they have a a couple of vehicles raised up on mounds or platforms to draw your attention. They're on special display. Dealership wants you to really look at it. Paul accomplishes the same thing here by repeating this little phrase. What's the writer drawing attention to? Where does he want our focus to be? On Jesus Christ. The little phrase is the two words, in Christ, or some variation of it that can amount to the same thing. Can you find them as you look at the passage? There are 12 altogether. Verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, for he chose us in him. Verse 5, to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, and then also through his blood. Verse 9, the end, which he purposed in Christ. Verse 10, under one head even, Christ. And right away in verse 11, in him we were also chosen. Verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13, you also were included, where? In Christ. And the 12th instance, you were marked in him with a seal. You see what Paul's doing here? He's really driving it home over and over. Look at Jesus, you're in him. So it's Jesus that ties this whole passage, this big, long, run-on sentence in the Greek. It's him that ties it together. And it's not just him, but in him. And who's that? Who's the apostle saying is in Christ? We are. You are. If you have trusted in him as your Lord and Savior and are intent on following him daily. So not only is this passage about Jesus and what he's done, it's about you Two, you are here in Ephesians 1. These dozen little phrases, in Christ or in him, are in fact pointing out ten precious truths about all believers when you get right down to it. In Christ, Paul says, we are blessed, chosen, adopted, graced, redeemed, have purpose, are connected, have hope, are included, and marked. But you didn't come here this morning expecting to read about yourself, dug deep from some first century AD manuscript, did you? But that's true for everyone who is in him. This passage is about what God has done for you, and Paul is praising God for it all. It's all one big doxology. Let's look at each of the ten briefly in turn. First, blessed. 
I got 10 slices of Christmas cake here. We'll gradually munch through the Christmas cake. To begin, we find we are blessed in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How comprehensive is that? Every spiritual blessing. That does not mean a new car in your driveway or unexpected deposits in your bank account, though in general, following God's commands in Scripture, such as being diligent in your work, not over-consuming substances, or being a sluggard, will help you materially more than behaving the opposite. The blessings here, Paul says, are in the heavenly realms, in the eyes of God, waiting for us to enjoy them when we're resurrected. Remember the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says those who can consider themselves blessed who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, who are persecuted on account of righteousness and who hunger and thirst for it, those who are meek, who mourn, who are poor in spirit. Now, you probably wouldn't normally consider such people blessed, but in terms of God's kingdom, God is aware of them and will be responding to them, supplying comfort, filling them regarding righteousness. God will show them himself and show them mercy. His kingdom will belong to them. Paul notes in Galatians 3.9, So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Faith in the Lord can turn your burdens into blessings. Second, chosen. We talked about recently how God has picked or chosen his people. Ephesians 1.4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's good to ask the W5 questions to help you digest this rich Christmas cake. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. When did God choose you in Christ? Before the creation of the world. Even before earth was made, before the universe existed, God the Father was loving Jesus the Son, as Jesus says in John 17, 24. And if you are in Christ, God was loving you and choosing you even back then. For what has God chosen you? Well, there are a couple of spots in this passage that address that. Verse 4, he chose us in him to be holy and blameless in his sight. Some ultra-reformed folks may kind of camp on predestination and election, but let's not miss what we are chosen for, to be holy and blameless in his sight. How's that going for you? On the one hand, God views us who believe clothed in Christ's own righteousness since he was our substitute. On the other hand, we are aware of our daily ongoing battle with sin and temptation, needing to keep praying the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses. Sanctification, holification, is both positional and progressive, but he's chosen us to be holy. Later in verses 11 and 12, we're told, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. What are you chosen for? To glorify God, to make him look good. So when other people see you and your actions, they will be drawn to praise God and admire how good God is. You are picked for the purpose of praising your maker. 
Three, adopted. A few years back, I had the privilege of attending an adoption ceremony at the local courthouse. It was a big deal. Two parents were officially bringing into their family two daughters from a completely different household. These girls then took on the family name and called their new parents mom and dad. It's a huge commitment and something to celebrate. There's a new family unit. They belong formally in that household from then on. Paul describes something similar for you when you commit your life to Christ and receive him as your savior. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Those who believe are adopted as God's very own sons and daughters. You're, you're part of the heavenly family. John 1.12 observes, And to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Adopted with the rights of God's own sons and daughters. Graced. Through Jesus Christ, we have been adopted, verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And verse 7, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Oh, you love that word, lavished. Grace means you, though a sinner, are now accepted by a holy God. Mercy is not getting the punishment we deserved. Grace is getting the forgiveness and inheritance we did not deserve. Paul elsewhere acknowledges that he was the worst of sinners, having been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Yet, 1 Timothy 1.14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Praise God for his grace. Yes, redeem I received an offer in the email from a fuel company offering me a 20% discount if I booked a stay at a certain hotel. Now, to take advantage of the offer, I would have to redeem the coupon. To redeem means literally to, to buy back. We're quite familiar with redeeming things that cost money because we like saving on expense. No doubt it costs the hotel company something, but in return they get some advertising and promotion out of the deal. In biblical times, the slave trade existed. Even people were bought and sold for bonded labor. It was an exchange like today you would hand over money for a grapefruit or a bag of salt for your driveway. It's this language the Bible uses to describe how Christ ransomed or redeemed us from evil, buying us back for himself. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. How was our forgiveness of sins purchased? What price was paid? Was it money that was used? Bitcoin? Shekels? Denarii? No, it was redemption through his blood. That's how Jesus bought you back for himself at the cost of his own life. The Apostle Peter wrote, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
verse 14 also talks of our redemption, but in a future sense, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Here is the completion of the process for which we were bought. When we are raised from the dead to live forever in fellowship with our Lord, bought back from death to eternal life. Six, purpose. This passage emphasizes Christians have purpose, something to live for. It's not just an an aimless clashing of molecules with no ultimate goal or destiny. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. There's another little phrase that Paul repeats three times in this passage that informs us what that purpose might be. Verse 12, in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. Verses 5 and 6, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. In the end of this long winding sentence in Greek, verse 14, to the praise of his glory. You've not been put on this planet simply to have a good time. You're not here just to use up air, water, and food. You were created and saved by faith for a definite purpose, for the praise of God's glory, to lift him up, extol him, and point out to others how good and gracious and loving and faithful he is. Do that, and you will feel at your core your reason for existence. As the Lord pours into your gifts and abilities and expands your sphere of influence because you're doing what you were put here for. It will give you more reasons to praise him, more evidence to share with others. Seven, connection. In Christ, we are given new connection and accountability. Verse 10 tells us God's ultimate aim, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, scientists have searched for some unifying theory or principle. One website notes, from the time that 19th century physicists attempted to unite disparate physical phenomena, the search for a grand unified theory that would conjoin every known force and physical law has always been an implicit or explicit dream of physicists. And well... Paul's unifying theory is that God will bring together or sum up all things under Christ as head. See 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 28. I'm sorry, this one ran off the ends of the slide. And the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Part of Jesus' lordship is our accountability, our being subject to him. Through him we'll have proper connection to other things in heaven and on earth. Eight is hope. Sometimes listening to the news these days, you get the feeling that hope is a scarce commodity. As Christians, we've been given a glimpse of the big picture. We've been able to peek ahead to the last chapter in the book, and that gives us hope. That hope is not in streets of gold or endless bliss playing harps in the clouds, but in a person named Jesus. 
verse 12. We were chosen and predestined in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In Paul's famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, hope is one of the things that abides alongside faith and love. Our hope is tied to a historical fact, not some philosophical theory. Paul admits in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 19, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Then he adds, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So hope has a real basis. Nine, included. Apparently there's an expression today to describe the angst of people who are limited, not immortal, and not omnipotent. This is called F-O-M-O. Anybody know what F-O-M-O stands for? It's fear of missing out. F-O-M-O. You can't be everywhere and do everything. There are often timetable conflicts. You can't make it to every party or event you might like to go to. But Jesus takes away our FOMO in terms of spiritual things. He has made it possible for us to be included. Verse 13a. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. Someone shares the good news with us, explaining our need of a Savior, how God sent Jesus to die for our sins, how he rose again and is going to return, and how we can be saved by putting our wholehearted trust in him and yielding control of our life to him. And we believe that simple message. We hold as true and apply to ourselves verses like Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We've heard the word of truth and it struck a chord with us. We have faith in the message, so commit to Christ. That's how we are included in him, how we're saved. We become part of his forever family called the church. No longer alone. Never again feel all alone in the universe, cut off from meaning and purpose. We're part of a fellowship that has existed through many centuries many countries for centuries and that finds its focus and future in the Son of God. Ten is sealed. Finally, Paul points out that we have a sign of new ownership imprinted on us. Verses 13 and 14. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And remember how we said you can see the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interwoven throughout this passage? Here's the Holy Spirit segment. Paul is saying the Holy Spirit marks us, makes us identifiable, helps us stand out as belonging to God. The Spirit is a down payment, as it were, assuring us of our eventual inheritance in the future, including that part about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Paul started this passage referring to. The apostle said something similar to the church at Corinth. Now it's God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, 
set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. A seal in those times represented security, authenticity, ownership, and authority. As God's children through faith, we are deepened in all those areas through the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives. Section, an inheritance missed. In closing, we can praise God that he has indeed blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We can live bolstered knowing, as the New Living Translation puts it, when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. Yet, do we live conscious of these blessings? Are we confident and assured knowing an inheritance awaits, guaranteed? A man who had been a drunkard on Chicago's skid row for many years came to a halfway house, ate a meal, and went to bed. That was his last night on earth. He died poverty-stricken and friendless, never to see another day. What he did not know was that he had an inheritance of over $4 million waiting for him in England. The authorities had searched for him but were unable to find him because he had no address. Here was a man who had all the material wealth he could want, but he lived and died in poverty. Are we like that at all? God does not want us to live in poverty because we aren't fully aware of our wealth in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for choosing us before the creation of the world, for letting us hear the truth that can save us, for making Jesus real to us as our Savior and Lord. How precious to know our sins are forgiven. God, for any listening who don't know that reality, who have not yet trusted Christ, Help them take that step. Help them know for a certainty you have loved them and provided for them and drawn them to yourself through the cross. Convict them of their need. Help them recognize the solution you have so richly and graciously provided. Holy Spirit, empower us to live in the light of these truths. Help people to see by our behavior and our speech that we are in fact belonging to God, sold out, blessed in the heavenlies, living on purpose. Be pleased to continue your saving work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.